I've got to say this about the American government. They would lie to us, they would lie to the American people, and then they would take us to where we could prove that they were lying. American soldiers were murdering their officers at a rate that has not been seen in any army in world history. Pick an army. Pick an army. The Chinese army, the French army, the German army, British army. You could go anywhere you wanted to go. And you could, you know, talk your way onto a helicopter or talk your way into a, a joining a foot patrol. There was no one to tell you you couldn't do it. There were some guys, of course, that didn't make it. We had CBS, NBC, ABC. The news was what we said it was. And you were hard-pressed to go find out anything else. And now you can have your own newscast uh, custom-made for you, and it can reflect whatever prejudices you have. Hi. I'm Mike Boris. Welcome to Captured Culture. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with four veteran CBS News correspondents, Jed Duval, Bill Plant, Bert Quint, and Richard Wagner. The four started with CBS News in the 1960s, a time that has been called the golden age of television news because reporters then had the capability to do their job free of restrictions. If they can get to a story, they could cover it. A far cry from today's journalistic environments, where access to coverage is controlled by the military. The 1960s were pre-cable days. American viewers had their choice of CBS, NBC, or ABC for watching TV news. That was it. Duval, Plant, Quint, and Wagner all had long distinguished careers covering news across the globe. But they had at least one thing in common, Vietnam, the so-called living room war because of how television brought it home to the American people, was their first big assignment. This is Bill Plant. I worked for CBS News for 52 years, retired right after the election of 2016. I'm Richard Wagner. I worked for CBS News for 30 years, and I retired in 1993. And the way the news business had changed over the years, I left with no regrets. My name is Bert Quint. I used to work for CBS. I'm Jed Duval. I worked for CBS News for 16 years. And for those of you who can hear us but can't see us, Bill Plant looks like he could do another 52 years. <laughs> so, Bill, let's start with you. When did you first come to CBS? And uh, tell us a little bit about your first assignment. I came to CBS in 1964. Mm -hmm. I started on June 1st in 1964, and I stayed there for 52 years. So I'd been there a couple of years, a couple of weeks, rather, when they sent me, along with a lot of other people, down to Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers had just disappeared during a voting rights uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, they were presumed to have been murdered. And indeed, as we found out a few weeks later, they had been. But um, it was like going to the dark side of the moon. I'm from Chicago. I had never been further south than St. Louis. It's a real eye-opener. If I got on the air, which I think I did a little bit, it was only during the weekend news. But I was there and uh, watched a lot of other great reporters work and soaked up the atmosphere of the still-segregated south. See, uh the Ku Klux Klan always knew who we were because we had the, as one of them said, y'all got the brand new cars 
from the rental services at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't look anything like the pickup trucks. Did they see you as good guys or bad guys? They did not see us as good guys. We were, uh, we were part of the enemy. Yeah. We were often referred to, excuse me, as white niggers. Mm-hmm. Almost all of us who came down to cover the civil rights movement were more sympathetic to the idea of people being able to vote freely and live freely than the local custom suggested. So we were the enemy. Richard, how about you? I also started in 1964, and I was sent to Chicago as my first assignment. From Chicago, I moved on over the next 30 years to London, to Vietnam, Vietnam, to the United States, uh, New York, Seattle, Los Angeles eventually, Simons in Northern Ireland, all over Central America. I gravitated towards wars and uh, natural disasters. But I, I had had enough after 30 years. I was ready to stop doing it. And the business had changed so much. It wasn't what we used to do when I started. People's opinions were not slipped into stories. They were the stories. The correspondents had points of view. And when I started, this executive, whose name was Ralph Paskman, he said, remember, no one cares what you think. No one cares what you think. Just report the story. We don't, your opinion isn't important. We don't want to know your opinion. When it changed, when it became people's opinions more than just the facts, mm-hmm. it started to lose me. When it was just ABC, CBS, and NBC, the three old line networks, pretty much we did the same thing. It was straightforward reporting of the news. So I, I would say the advent of uh, CNN and then followed by the deluge of cable outlets in later years, uh, that's, that's when it changed for me when the people delivering book passed for news and actually was very often just their opinion. Right. Bert, how did you wind up as a foreign correspondent? I was an accidental foreign correspondent. All I wanted to do was be a sports writer. And I started off in the United States as a sports writer. CBS Radio, uh, I guess, read the Herald Tribune, so... They hired me, and uh, I ended up a foreign correspondent. And uh, speaking of accidental, uh, one of my first assignments was one where I kind of got in trouble a little bit. It was to uh, Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, in 1965, when the American Marines went in, supposedly to save Americans from a communist uprising, which was... Can I say bullshit on the radio? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> With this great cameraman, Carl Sorensen. And the reports we did uh, were frowned upon by the American government. And Lyndon Johnson uh, requested from CBS News, the boss of CBS, uh, who was Ed Morrow's old producer, uh, to take me out of the Dominican. He did not. He refused. He turned Johnson down. And then, not too long after that, CBS asked me to go to to go to Vietnam. And the first thing I told myself was, I'm not going to get in trouble again politically. Because in the first place, I knew nothing. When I went to Mexico City and started Mm -hmm. being a foreign correspondent, I knew absolutely nothing about the world. And the first time I saw... Uh, a real riot, a protest against the Americans. I shouted into the into the microphone, they're burning an American flag. 
but God, that's like a crossing the street, you know. It, that's a common practice for years. And like you guys, uh, I ended up doing a lot of uh, messy work mm -hmm. to the point where they started calling me the CBS fireman. At CBS News, we call Bert Quint the fireman because he's best when the heat is on. The National Guard troops are going back now. It looks as though it's over, at least for the moment. Good evening. <laughs> that was another mistake. They used to run an, an ad about Cronkite and company and so forth, and they had me carrying some film and running. When the news is hot, Quint runs in and covers it. Bullshit. I was running away. The, <laughs> the white mice in the Saigon cops had beaten the crap out of cameraman Keith Kay and me. And uh, we'd put up a pretty good fight, but we were a little bit wounded. And I was running away. And this was the picture they used of me running into battle. <laughs> After that, it was a matter of very good luck in staying alive and having some of these great, great cameramen and soundmen. They're the ones who carried me. I was an accidental correspondent, but I had some great people <laughs> pushing me in the right direction. We can't say enough about the cameramen and the soundmen, because without them, we were nothing. Right. And remember, the cameraman was standing up or somehow taking pictures. We reporters could be behind a tree. Not the cameraman. The cameraman has to get the video because it's television. So without the, without the cameraman and the sound man, the, they're equally brave people. Uh, and nuts. But an instinct, an intelligence. They have the feel. That, I just followed them. Invincible. They yeah. all feel invincible. I just followed them. And yeah. if, I, if I got lucky on a story, it was because they had the right instincts. One of our cameramen in Vietnam, Dong Van Ri was absolutely fearless. Mm -hmm. He would stand up with the bullets flying when the rest of us mm -hmm. were cowering yep. uh, in fear. He mm -hmm. had been told by a fortune teller that he would not die in battle. So he continued to film. Right. And he didn't and he die, did in not die in battle. He did not die in battle. Instead, he was up on his roof fixing his television antenna and touched a power line and was electrocuted. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Uh, Jed. Yeah. I, I went to the company in 67 after you guys. And did I got there on April 17th, 1967. This was Walter Cronkite's first day back after a two or three week after a strike. And a man named Arnold Zinker, who had taken Walter Cronkite's place reading the evening news for a week or two. On Friday, they knew it was all over, that Walter would be back. They just settled the strike stuff. And this was when Paul Greenberg, who we all know, a very, uh, very effective producer for CBS and later for NBC, uh, came out of the office and addressed Arnold Zenker. He was gathering up his papers. Everyone knew that his little stint now was over and said to Zenker famously, Zenker, you have a great future behind you. <laughs> when I've come to realize many, many years later that we all got into this business in the 60s when it was pretty much open to a white male. And the, 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 the main qualification was you could breathe. I mean, all <laughs> kinds of people got into the newspaper and radio and television news business just because they were guys. And that has changed a lot. And, you know, now if you look at Channel 9 in, in Washington, they're all very lovely women. Channel 4, they're all lovely women, American women, Asian women, black women. 
And but that 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 is that is one big thing. Um, we all went to Vietnam. You mentioned a cameraman, a cameraman named Norman Lloyd. We've all worked with. He was from Australia, and he'd worked in local news there, chasing accidents and stuff like that. But he was a really tough guy, and he had a lot to tell me about what to say in a stand-upper. Uh, he was not a literate, terribly literate man. He spent a long time trying to spell the words, ordinary English words, on a dope sheet. But if he was running the camera and I was doing a stand-up, it didn't sound right to him. He would stop and say, that's not interesting. Talk about this instead. <laughs> and it was a very, very big help. I'll tell one story about Vietnam. Uh, this was 71, during the invasion of Laos, where we helped our South Vietnamese allies conduct uh, an invasion of Laotian Trail. But this was done by an army unit called the 1st of the 5th Mech. And they had a wonderful major in PR named La Monica. And I was in Saigon, had taken a break from being up north. Norman and I had been spending a lot of time in the northern part of South Vietnam covering stories and got a lot of different stories. And I picked up the phone in the office in Saigon and La Monica said, we're going to have a party up there. Now, you guys knew what that meant, but I didn't. This was a code word from an army officer telling a reporter, we're going to have a party. You're invited to the party. And I thought, and I said to him, I don't like parties. I don't go to parties. <laughs> but this was, a, a, this was a code for there's going to be a big operation. It's going to be real news. Got to get here and cover it. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about and ended the conversation. No, nah, thanks. Sorry about that. <laughs> somebody, somebody with more brains and experience <laughs> explained to me what we're talking about. And we went up and spent... Uh, whatever you spend in the mud, in the mud, mud up to your ears up there. And, uh, and it, was a big, it was a big operation. And the South Vietnamese conducted this huge invasion of Laos, got their ass kicked. And this was the series that produced the helicopters, American helicopters flying back out of Laos with Vietnamese troops hanging on the skids by the hundreds. And all matter, they just got their ass kicked. It was something awful. But it was, we got a lot of stories out of it. So common bond amongst you guys, obviously, is Vietnam. Bill, did you have much experience when you went to Vietnam for the first time? Not really. I uh, got called into Ralph Pasquin's office. Ralph Pasquin was the equivalent of the national editor. I had been at CBS about three months. And he said to me, Plant, how'd you like to go into Vietnam? (laughs) And... He caught me absolutely flat-footed, and I said, uh, 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 <laughs> but, 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 Ralph, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting married in January. This was October. <laughs> he looked at me without a trace of irony, and he said, what the fuck would you want to do that for? <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't kidding. In his world, getting married made no sense. <laughs> so he sent me for a couple of months. And then he found somebody to take the job who did very well. Name was Morley Safer. (laughs) (laughs) But the first time I went to Vietnam was 64. Uh Then I went again in 67, 71, 72, and then at the end in 75. Was fear something you guys thought about going over there? Or was it just the excitement of the job? No, I was afraid. Mm. I was always afraid for my rear end. Mm -hmm. Um, It was terribly uh, scary to be crouched in a, a foxhole, a, a ditch, having artillery come crashing down all around you. 
or just just mortars. Yeah. You're you're stuck there. You can't get up and run away. You get up and you're moving around on the surface. You're totally exposed. If there are NVA or VC with AK-47s nearby, they'll shoot you. So you have to hope that one of these rounds, these high explosive rounds, doesn't land on you or near you. It, it is very scary. I recall once um, a situation where uh, we were pinned down, couldn't move, and then the barrage lifted almost as quickly as it had begun. And I wanted to quickly stand up, now that it was safe, and do a stand-up to tack onto a piece that I would do later. And I found that my hand was shaking so much mm -hmm. that I, I really couldn't do it. It affected me to the point where my hand was shaking so badly, I, I couldn't do what I had to do until I collected myself. Yeah. A question for you, Bert. You were reporting what you were seeing in Vietnam. Did you ever tone things down? Because you, you saw I, some I told stuff. myself I was going to tone things down. That, that uh, in as much as I really didn't know anything about Vietnam, it would be easy to just, uh, you know, not get in trouble. And yet it was within a month of getting there the first time, it became so obvious what was happening that I think it was in July of 67, I'd only been there a few weeks, and we were out. I was with, uh, I think, Keith Kay, and we had done one of these walks in the sun. In other words, so, you know, you go out, you go in a helicopter group, you jump off the helicopters, you rush into wherever it is. You don't know whether you're going to be under fire or not. Often, you're not. And then you trudge 10 hours with heavy packs through the jungle, and nothing happens. And I felt a sense of frustration. What are we going to do with this film well, of nothing? So I did a story, trying to, just trying to put, make some use of the film in these 10 hours out in the jungle. Uh -huh. I did a story saying that, in my opinion, we're not winning. This is a, a stalemate. We're not going to win. It's a stalemate, is, is that, what I call it. Is that what you meant when you said it was obvious what was happening? Yes. You know, it was a tale of two cities and two wars. In Saigon, it was the five o'clock follies. Everything is hunky-dory. Everything is fine. Bad guys' bodies are piling up, and uh, we're getting away unscathed, and we're saving villages. And then you go out there, and you find that the villages being, are being saved by being bombed to destruction by us. You go out there, and uh, there are no real pitched battles. The enemy does what it does and gets away and... We killed some more civilians. So, but we weren't going to win, even though the American government was telling us we were going to win. So I did this story. It was the same day that Johnny Apple on the New York Times did a story saying stalemate. He was in Saigon or wherever he did the story from, and I was out, out in the field somewhere. I read somewhere <laughs> after that that it was Cronkite's program it was on Cronkite's program at night, and that's when Lyndon Johnson turned to somebody and said, we've lost Cronkite. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but I've heard it, that that was when he turned against Cronkite. Mm -hmm. that we are closer to victory today is to believe in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. I think that was the Tet Offensive of 68, and Cronkite 
said something similar. Similar, yeah. I think yes. that's when Johnson, who was in office at that time, said, if we've lost Cronkite, we've... You know, right, yeah. right. And then it was a month later uh, when CBS did a special uh, in Saigon or in Vietnam, and uh, I interviewed Ellsworth Bunker, who was the, the American ambassador at the time. And he made the remark that things are getting better, he said. Mm-hmm. We can now, and this is when he introduced the phrase, I believe. You know what the phrase was, don't Light you? Light at the end of the tunnel? Light. Light at the end of the tunnel. And I asked him, well, Mr. Ambassador, how long is this tunnel? And you, this was on the Ken Burns thing, as a matter of fact, where he is just silent. But anyway, I did a lot of those stories, as we all did, because we were reporting what we saw. But I've got to say this about the American government. They would lie to us. They would lie to the American people. And then they would take us to where we could prove that they were lying. Mm -hmm. And they fed us. They housed us. They protected us. They sent in helicopters to get us out of bad places. And it made us possible to help turn against people against the war. And you notice that they don't do it anymore. That was Iraq and the the embedding. Exactly. They learned their lesson. But Mm -hmm. I thought it was such a wonderful contradiction. But... This, I thought, was democracy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean they don't do it anymore? Since Vietnam, Mm -hmm. press access to American troops has been very carefully guarded. Mm -hmm. In Vietnam, we were free to move throughout the country pretty much as we wished. We could go out to the airport, Tonson Noon Airport in Saigon, and without any kind of reservation, generally board an aircraft, a fixed-wing airplane or a helicopter, go to another city in Vietnam, go to a fire base, mm-hmm. and just hang out at the discretion of the commander. But yep. most of them were quite willing to have us mm-hmm. and yep. wait for some kind of action. And sometimes you had to wait three days, but yeah. you could get a ride on a helicopter sure. into something. You might have to wait that long. That's right. And the American military after Vietnam never has allowed that again. The next major conflict, of course, was Iraq. Mm-hmm. And there you had troops embedded sort of under the control mm. of mm-hmm. the the military free to free to uh, report and shoot but constricted in what they're able to see and do and yeah. I have a, I have a corollary to that there's a famous video of Charles Kuralt when he was in Vietnam interviewing a sergeant we'll call Smith whatever and Smith has just been wounded not a terribly serious wound but He's wincing in pain, and he's given a cigarette. And Corral, with a very distinctive voice of his, is asking him questions. This goes for a long time. goes on for a long time. The camera goes in on Smith's face. And this is not what a colonel at the Pentagon wants the home viewer to see. Hmm. Now, they run this video at their press school, and they say to the lieutenants and the captains, do not ever let this happen. <laughs> Be in control, not of the correspondent, but the cameraman. B, with that, and okay, so now, swish pan forward. It's 19, I don't know what, in Mogadishu. And David Miller, who we worked for at CBS News, is now working for NBC News. And he wants, as he said to me, I want someone who will leave the hotel. (laughs) And uh, I go over there working for NBC. I had like a three or four week stint. And you do the Today Show cut in from the roof because it's the only safe place in Mogadishu, the roof of the hotel you live in. Because as soon as you go out on the street, 
they're after you. The kids are after you. They're stealing your stuff. And maybe the bad guys are after you. But you go and you have a negotiation with an NBC producer who's not a CBS kind of person at all, but is very timid about And, and she has approached uh, the Army, the U.S. Army, to take us on a little tour. Three days later, three days later, two Humvees show up. And we get in. The correspondent, the producer, the camera, and the sound, we get in these two Humvees. There's a colonel in one Humvee, and I don't know what was a captain or a major in the other, plus the driver, plus a guy with a weapon. And we are, exactly as you say, Bill, completely under control. We go out and we start filming some little thing halfway outside of Mogadishu, and in the distance we see some smoke two or three miles away. Let's go there. No, no, that would not be safe. (laughs) In Vietnam, you're traveling without an escort, which reminds you a lot of the Soviet Union having an escort. But we also had no producers. This was one of the <laughs> other things in Vietnam. We were on our own. You're with a cameraman, the sound three of you, taking everything with you. And uh, we'd have gone down that road to see that, not with the control that the Pentagon has now. And that's the key. Control that, control that lens. Don't let them see an interview with an wounded sergeant. Yep. CNN had been on the air. They came on in 1980. And it began to multiply. Fox News got on to the White House pool in 1996. MSNBC developed all these others. But, you know, in our golden years, there were two and a half networks, really. We had some good competition from ABC mm-hmm. in Vietnam. But otherwise, they weren't not much in the news business. Their Sunday program was issues and answers, and it wasn't very well attended or listened to. But it was pretty much... And CBS could do... Um, CBS reports and get a a rating of one Mm -hmm. where Walter was getting ratings, I guess, in the, you know better, you worked at Cronkite in the 12s and the 20s, I guess. They would get, and they could, the network could afford that hour to throw away that hour in prime time with one. NBC could do their white papers, they called them, for a one rating of one or less. Because it was, you know, all they were competing with was the other one, the other guy. Mm. But when you get 100 different channels or 25 different channels instead of two, you can't give away. You can't give away one hour of, of prime time. You've got to try to compete every hour of the week. And therefore, the news that we think, think of, you know, when someone asks me, what was your career? I say, well, I worked for CBS News when it was a real news organization. Right. You know, and I like a lot of the stuff they do. 60 Minutes is still a very good program. Mm-hmm. But it's a different world because of the, of the influx of all of these others. I mean, a, a huge portion of the American populace gets its news from Fox, right. which is all fake. Yeah, the influx of the other organizations, news organizations, social media and so forth, but also social the media. bottom line. Mm-hmm. The bottom line became all important rather than secondary. Yep. Well, the bottom line was important from the beginning. Stop and think about it. Edward R. Murrow had a dispute with CBS News following the end of the Second World War because they wouldn't carry... Uh, as many documentary specials as he mm-hmm. thought they should. Right. He was an executive as well as an on-air correspondent. Um, he famously had a falling out with his good friend Bill Paley, the chairman of CBS, right. and he left in 1960 and became head of the U.S. Information Agency in the Kennedy administration. Yeah. And he did so because he thought that the network was giving up its on his obligation to provide uh, news and information to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, he famously said in a speech 
1959 in Chicago to the Radio Television News Directors Association that television could inform and, and educate and enlighten. And if it didn't do those things, it was nothing more than lights and wires in a box. <laughs> right. This instrument can teach, it can illuminate, yes, and even it can inspire. But it can do so only to the extent that humans are determined to use it to those ends. Otherwise, it's nothing but wires and lights in a box. The trouble with television is that it is rusting in the scabbard during a battle for survival. Right. So the bottom line consideration has just been around from the beginning and continued to encroach uh, year by year. Yes. Yes. Richard, do you remember a moment when things started changing in that direction? I, I would say that um, when we started with just, uh, as Jed Bruce said, two and a half networks, uh, and we could uh, go anywhere we wanted to go, I'm talking uh, mainly Vietnam uh, or Northern Ireland for that matter, the field was not full of competitors, uh, other people that were doing the same thing you were doing. When, when more and more news outlets started sending uh, people to war zones or natural disasters, that just changed the, uh, the nature of what we did because it's different when you were the only source of information on a particular story. Um, I think one thing we all liked was uh, we were the eyes and ears of millions of Americans. Um, and what we put on, on the CBS Evening News um, was pretty much the record of what happened that day, wherever we happened to be. But when the pool of reporters, cameramen, producers, etc., grew, then things started to change. I think maybe the product was diluted by um, more people in the mix. I think back when it was just two and a half networks, it was a better product that we were uh, putting together and putting on the air for, the, for people to see. As we all hark back to Ralph Passman, no one cares what you think, just report what you see. With these new outlets coming in, you started getting opinions. Now, if you're a right-wing type person, you want to watch Fox. If you're a left-wing type person, you want to watch MSNBC. You can watch whatever prejudice you like and have it reinforced on television daily, practically any time of day because of the 24-hour news cycle that never stops. I would say the abundance, superabundance, of people doing what we did changed the uh, nature of what we did terrifically. Yeah, but there's a lot of people who would argue that more choice is better. I mean, look, when I... When I started covering the White House for CBS News in 1981, when we stood on the lawn at 6.30 Eastern Time, uh, and we had CBS, NBC, ABC, the news was what we said it was. And you were hard-pressed to go find out anything else. And now you can have your own newscast uh, <laughs> custom-made for you, and it can reflect whatever prejudices you have. Now, choice, yes. Better, maybe not. Another element is the control that the networks started putting on their own people. Uh, they started bringing in bureau managers and producers. In the beginning, when I began anyway, uh, 
it was three people against the world. Mm -hmm. Cameraman, sound man, correspondent, and the world included your own company very often. Uh, but it was us against the world, and that gave us uh, a great spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, there would be tremendous competition. You talk about the money being pumped in. Three charter airplanes would arrive in one place at one time, ABC, CBS, NBC, to cover one story. Three charters and three groups would come out. But there was a spirit in those days, the us-against-the-world spirit, which I don't believe exists now. I got a story about those charter planes. I was not in on this, but I heard about it. Nicaragua earthquake in 19-whatever, and they do their work. They go down there, and they shoot, and they pile up all the tape or film or something, and they send it off in one of the charters, and it's 6 o'clock at night, and they're hungry. And they all look at each people from different networks, but they all knew each other, worked together, producers and correspondents, and they all looked at other, another charter sitting right there. Let's go to dinner, and they flew to Mexico City. <laughs> I think you could check on that. I could give you the names. <laughs> Maybe you better not. <laughs> In terms of three people against the world, it was live reporting, right? And you were live storytelling, or was it a chance to actually put something together after the fact when you've seen it? Oh, remember when when we were in Saigon, we bundled up film. It took the, the pictures we had taken. Plus, we'd sit down, and the guy would run the camera and record a track the way we're recording this program. But you bundled all that up and sent it off. And it got processed in Hong Kong or Tokyo or Seattle or San Francisco or New York. And it's your piece. And it's a couple of uh, 400 feet, 800 feet, 1,200 feet of film. And they would put that together somewhere. Um, but our predecessors, Severide and the others, in Europe in the first, Second World War, rather, they would get into some place where they could feed their report, which might be five or 10 or 15 minutes long audio, and they would fling it into the atmosphere and hope that it would land in New York, <laughs> an electronic you know, <laughs> event. And they didn't know. I mean, Severide would be on, he wrote about this in a wonderful, wonderful book that he did uh, called Not So Wild a Dream. Uh, he talked about, you know, he's with troops He's with uh, refugees, thousands of people on the road. He's got this story. He records it someplace, I don't know where, uh, or, 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 or just gets it out and, and, and gets it up on some kind of broadcast. They didn't have satellites. But it got to New York somehow with shortwave radio. Mm -hmm. And if they recorded it, they got it down and it got on the air. But he had no idea. He might not know for weeks whether his piece was on the air. And, of course, it was. Murrow from London had stuff all the time. The whole country knew, this is London, with Murrow's thing. Was there a sense of pride being from CBS versus ABC or NBC? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, no question about it. We were proud of what we did. Um, our work seemed to um, be universally accepted. Um, we were applauded for what we did. Um, not, not that the others didn't get some um, credit, some, uh, some praise, but I think uh, back in the day, 60s, 70s, mm -hmm. uh, people were trying to come to CBS News to work. People were not leaving CBS News and jumping to ABC or NBC back then. From, from ABC or NBC, people were trying to come to CBS to work because we, uh, we were considered the, the best. And uh, we've been 
bandying about the terms reporters and correspondents. Well, there was a time when the term reporter or correspondent uh, really meant something. When you started out, you were a reporter, and you were junior to these lofty uh, correspondent-type guys who had mm-hmm. earned their spurs mm-hmm. and had been promoted. And once someone once asked Eric Severod, uh, Eric, what is the difference between a reporter and a correspondent? And Eric drew himself up and said, mm, about 25000 a year. <laughs> uh, it would be a lot more today. But uh, that was Eric's way of saying that, uh, yeah, when you're, a correspondent, when you're named a correspondent, um, you have uh, arrived in the profession of what we all four of us did. Um, I, I remember when I was named a correspondent was in 1973 when I was in Vietnam. I was I got a field promotion from reporter to to correspondent, and it was a big deal mm-hmm. to be. Now I am a CBS News correspondent, not a reporter, mm-hmm. and it was important to me, and uh, important to my family. Mm-hmm. Walter Cronkite was certainly an iconic personality. Did you feel his credibility reflected on CBS and your reporting? Well, I think um, Walter Walter enjoyed the confidence of the American people. Uh, his demeanor, Walter's demeanor on the air was very winning. He, you believed what he said. He was convincing. Um, and also, Walter uh, told the truth. What, what Walter reported um, was not Walter's opinion. It was what went on that day. So this, remember, now this is before opinion news appears on the scene and and pretty much uh, ruined everything because as the famous words of Ralph Passman, no one cares what you think. Well, uh, turn on television now today and look at news broadcasts. It's full of what people think. Uh, And I find it um, very off-putting to the point where I don't watch a great deal of television news anymore. Bill. Do you currently have a go-to source for news and information? You have to curate your sources. You have to decide. I mean, depending on who you are, you may decide that the New York Times and the Washington Post are reliably correct. If, on the other hand, you are of a different political bent, you might decide that you need to get your news from somewhere else, from sources with a more conservative bent. So that's the point. You can now choose where you get your news. It puts the responsibility on the consumer, which is pretty dangerous because most consumers are not well-educated. There is a movement in this country for media literacy to be taught to kids in roughly middle school so that they know that when I say something, it's not, because, it's not true because I say so. I have to give them some kind of source some kind of background, some kind of uh, credible uh, source for what I'm saying. Not, not true just because I say so, but true because it's attributed to somebody else. The people at CBS News did care. And it wasn't because they thought Ralph Passman would fire them, or it wasn't because they were being paid extra. They just cared. Didn't you? Don't you find this to be run through the, the whole organization? There was this feeling of, yeah. Yeah, for many years, yeah. <laughs> and then it stopped. Yep. Mm. 
Not it, entirely, but it certainly waned. It waned, yes. I have read, and I think there are people who will back up this, that when John Kennedy, as the new president, did something that was startling and very pleasant, he sat in his rocking chair and he invited three television reporters in, one from ABC, one from NBC, and one from CBS, and sat there in his chair. Remember this show? Okay, it was two hours of tape. But the White House was given, demanded the privilege of editing it down to one hour. This is surprising to me. But I have had people tell me, and I have read, that if you look at that tape, the only time the president squirms in his rocking chair is when George Herman of CBS News asks <laughs> questions. Because the other guys just you know, like, when are you going to visit China? Kind of question. But, but Herman was going boring in, as he did on every public, as did all kinds of people at CBS. As you did, you did, and you did, I'm sure. You bore in with a tough question. Bill, you became a White House correspondent. How many administrations did you work for? Four, five, four actually. Uh, during Bush 41, I was at the State Department covering James Baker, who was his Secretary of State. I heard you say, I don't remember where, that you've seen a lot of common mistakes with new administrations coming in regarding the press. Every new administration comes to the White House believing that they're going to change the world in their own image. It uh, takes a little while, six months, a year, before they run up against the forces that are Washington, what is currently called the deep state by those who believe they're being ill-used by the permanent bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So it's always true, Uh, and it usually has to do with overreach, uh, with the belief that they can make things happen. Uh, Our current president is a good example. He has been an executive all his life. He seemed to believe when he arrived that if he simply ordered something, it would happen. Well, that's not quite the way it works. Hmm. Uh, It seemed, as we know, he wanted to talk to uh, the uh, FBI director and get him on his side. Uh, It might work in business. It doesn't work in Washington. And it's uh, very similar to what every new administration does, if not exactly in kind, then uh, it it rhymes, even if it it doesn't... uh, exactly mirror what what goes on. Bill, who's your favorite White House press secretary in all those times? Mike McCurry. Mike? Mike McCurry was the press secretary Mm -hmm. to uh, Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton uh, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Yeah. And McCurry did an excellent job of serving both his principal and the press and managing to avoid tarring himself in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I w- he would be my favorite too, but I also really liked son of a co-winner, in my case, James Brady. You know, I, I don't come to this with clean hands. Brady was a dear friend. Yeah. Uh, so, sure. Uh, but he had such a brief time there, just uh, a couple of months. But he was a Cubs fan. Oh, yes, he was a Cubs fan. <laughs> you know, from, uh, from Illinois. Have yeah. other administrations done their best to bypass the press the way the current one does? Well, I can tell you this much. When I started covering Reagan in 81, his uh, image guy, Mike Deaver, said to me, said, you know, we're going to go over your heads. We're going to have him speak directly to the American people. Uh, We don't need you guys. And, of course, it didn't work because in 1981, the networks and the wire services basically controlled the news budget for the day, Mm -hmm. the news of what we said it was. Mm -hmm. 
Now, they can go directly over our heads. Uh, in fact, famously with Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a new one. In this administration, we have a president who communicates with 14 or 40 million people, whatever it is, on his Twitter account. It's custom made for that. Right. So times have changed. Okay. Do you have a, I guess what I'm asking is the most memorable experience in Vietnam? I don't know if this is the most memorable, but one that comes right to mind is in the last days of 1975. I volunteered to go back. Uh, I was in Chicago for CBS. And when I saw that the North Vietnamese were beginning to advance down the peninsula, I knew that the end was coming. I'd invested a lot of time in Vietnam. I loved Vietnam. I wanted to go back. So I put my hand up and they said, yes, get on a plane. So I got there about three weeks before the end. It was a frantic time. People, Vietnamese, were lined up every day outside the U.S. Embassy trying to get visas to leave because they all knew what was happening. And one day I was in the bureau and uh, suddenly out of nowhere, uh, this short human being, about three feet tall, arrives in the bureau. Uh, He turns out to be a dwarf. He said that he thought he was about 15. He had been hanging out with an army unit for the last several years. He said that he was an orphan, that his uh, parents had been killed in a bombing. Uh, He was probably Montagnard Mm -hmm. from the mountains between Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. His name was Lou, and he had, uh, from hanging out with the GIs, he had uh, a vo- an American vocabulary, a GI American vocabulary, rich in expressive adjectives and nouns. Um, and he was trying to figure out how to get out of the country. So I took him to um, an orphanage, which had an uh, international connection, and I knew that they were removing people. He did get on a plane. He was resettled in the, on the west coast of the United States. I did a story about him, too. It was a very compelling story because of him. And he lived until about two years ago. Really? And he built himself a very successful business. He was an accountant and, uh, and construction magnate. Wow. And he adopted the name of the family that took him in. It was Lou Aristad. Wonderful. In Washington State. So it's a, it's a wonderful, positive story that I remember so vividly. There are others that are not so, fun, so much fun. I think it would be good at this point to point out the GI vocabulary, which <laughs> really has been left behind. But in the time that we were in Vietnam, if you started to talk about to a troop, uh, an American GI of some kind, I'm not talking about the fancy officers, I'm talking about the guys. You were talking about the guys. There was actually... One topic of conversation at the beginning, which was how many days do you have left? Every American right. at this time was mm-hmm. sent there for 365 days, and every American knew to the day how many days he had left. That was the first thing. The next thing to realize is that the F word, with all its impact, was very often employed in every other word of a sentence. As subject, verb, or object. Everything. Matter. Everything. I am fucking ready to fucking go to fucking lunch if we could have some <laughs> fucking lunch. I mean, that is not an exaggeration. Very often they talked just like that. 
especially if they were talking about the enemy. Remember, too, that in the period we were there, American soldiers were murdering their officers at a rate that has not been seen in any army in world history. Pick an army. Pick an army. The Chinese army, the French army, the German army, British army. Murdering your officers, mutinies. The Pentagon acknowledges 259 or 269 of these in, in like 1970 or 71. Fragging officers. Yeah, fragmentation, grenade, pull the pin, throw it, and it explodes in fragments. You frag officers, so you throw one of these under your officer's bed in the middle of the night because you don't like them. I just don't like, uh, I just can't take too much pressure from the army. What happens to an unpopular officer out in the field? Mostly unpopular officers, from what I heard, if they if they mess with a grunt too much, they get shot out there. A friend of mine uh captain uh, kind of got shot in the back. What, what was he doing? What was the captain doing to deserve well, being shot what, in the back? Uh, from what my friend said, he was uh, telling him to just go on through. And, uh, well, they were, getting, they were getting hit pretty bad. And uh, he was telling him just keep on going. A lot of this was racial. A lot of this was black soldiers who'd been drafted, who felt mistreated by white people generally. Boom. I was in the middle of one of the mutinies, an entire company of American soldiers, right outside Quezon during this Quezon period, the, the later period, entire group, 96 American soldiers, in effect, told their colonel who was in a helicopter overhead and wanted them to go down the road and recover uh, an armored vehicle, a track, and they refused. They said, fuck you, go get it yourself. <laughs> And their lieutenants were terribly embarrassed and confused and didn't know what to do. And I was right in the middle of this, physically in the middle of this, walking past these soldiers and missed the story. And mm-hmm. my colleague from NBC, Tom Stridorst, got it. <laughs> but I got it the next day, and ABC's Steve Bell got it the day after that. He did the story with the general who said, well, we could have shot him, but we didn't. <laughs> and I did a story in, in the middle of this. The second day, I went and interviewed the, the, uh, the soldiers and why they wouldn't do it and what had happened to them. They'd been shunted off to some base uh, camp area far on the edges of Quezon so that we couldn't get them, but we got them anyway. But the, uh, the the period, hey, people have written books about this, uh, of uh, about the mutinies against authority by the American soldiers, both white and black, for different reasons, in different ways. It was enormous. And this is of great concern in the Pentagon because uh, they don't want this. Well, that's this is what happens when you draft people. It's one of the things that happens when you draft people. Richard, weren't you captured, actually, at one point? Yeah, I was uh, thinking of a story um, that uh, took place in Quang Nai province in uh, 1973. Uh, Norman Lloyd and I and our sound man, Win Nok An, decided we would go to My Lai, um, see what was there, what was left of it, because the fifth anniversary of the massacre was coming up. Early one morning in March 1968, Charlie Company of the 1st 20th American Infantry Battalion landed here by helicopter and attacked the village. By the time they left, four hours later, the young GIs of Charlie Company had killed hundreds of old men, women and children in cold blood. The village of Mi Lai 
had ceased to exist. So um, we flew up to Quang um, Nai, um, got a room in a flea bag hotel, and uh, picked up our white jeep. We we drove around Vietnam uh, in white jeeps. They, they were like the press vehicles. And everywhere we went, we seemed to have a white jeep. I don't know how we did it, but we always had a white jeep. So Nor- Norman and, and Ann and I drive down the road to My Lai, and it's no man's land. It's uh, been destroyed and essentially a free fire zone. The VC and the NVA think it belongs to them. The government thinks it belongs to them, and of course it really belongs to whoever has the upper hand at the moment. So anyway, we drive down to Milai, and as I say, there's nothing there. Uh, just some uh, torn down shack, not too much to see. I don't think, how am I going to do a story here? There's not too much to see. Uh, and then some kids come by with little switches in their hand, pushing their water buffalo along. And on, of course, uh, bilingual sound man, he speaks to them in, uh, in Vietnamese, and ask them, do they come here every day with their water buffalo about this time? And they say, oh, yeah, we, we're here every day about this time. And, and then I had told on what we, what we were trying to do. So he, he then asks them, uh, does anyone remember what happened when the Americans killed hundreds of people here? And one kid who looked about uh, maybe 14, he claimed that he remembered it. But, of course, we never really knew if he did or not. But he, he, he said, yes, I remember what the Americans did here. It was terrible. We told the kids that we'd be back the next day because it was next day was the actual anniversary, the date of, of the massacre. So we go back to Quang Nai, spend the night, and the next morning we drive back down to, to My Lai, and we park in the same place we parked the day before and walk about a mile into the, the hamlet. Sure enough, there are the kids in the water buffalo, but this time we get up to them and out of nowhere. We never saw them. They were just there. Uh, NVA regulars in uniform with weapons having surrounded us and told us to get on the ground, stay still, and of course on is translating all this, and they want to make sure that we are who we say we are, that we are in fact bao chi, which is the word for journalists in Vietnamese. I, for some reason, was not terribly concerned uh, number one, these were NVA regular troops, not some ragtag uh, VC. And I f- figured they would have some kind of discipline. So they they were quite adamant that we were not to move. But on on was talking with them, chatting. He not only saved his own life that day, he probably saved our lives because he absolutely convinced our captors that uh, we were legitimate journalists. We were here to report on the terrible atrocity worked by the Americans uh, in this very place. And uh, end of the afternoon, they agreed that we could get up, and there wasn't too much to shoot, as I say, not too much went on. We, we filmed some piles of rubble and, and the kids and the water buffalo, and we couldn't take pictures of the NVA troops. They said, no, 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 you don't take our pictures, you can take pictures of... Uh, the countryside and the and the kids and the water buffalo, but not, not us. So, but we did pose for pictures, still pictures. Uh, so I have actually hanging on my wall at home a, a picture of Norman Lloyd and I, and two of the, the NVA mm-hmm. troops taken by On the Sound Man. That was our our souvenir from uh, My Lai five years after the massacre. But as I say, I was terribly scared in other times and places. 
But for some reason, I just didn't feel that these NVA were going to harm us. And just that's the way it worked out. They wound up uh, you know, posing for pictures at the end, <laughs> even though we couldn't get them on television. Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't stand in front of the TV camera. The power of positive thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the very best and very worst days of my life was spent in the rung sat in the mud in Vietnam, where with a cameraman named P.B. Wan, mm-hmm. you all know, mm-hmm. and a sound man named Mr. Day, who had m- gotten married the day before. And as so much in my life, uh, things happened by accident. We were dressed in regular civilian clothes doing one story, saw a medevac somewhere and jumped on it and ended up in the mud, literally, literally like this. And we're tromping through the mud for a very long time. It's one very painful going. It's the rice paddies. And we're about to approach, we see over in front of us, a dike, a levee in the, in the rice fields. But to get to it, there's a stand of trees off there. And we're afraid that you know maybe the bad guys are there. We don't know that. So, spacing out one after the other, the soldiers. One would go, trudge through the mud, until he got to the other side. In the meanwhile, the firing did start because there were bad guys there. One after the other, the soldiers would go and wade through the mud toward life, this little dike. And my feelings about, uh, I, I, I had been, I knew what it was to nearly die before getting to Vietnam because I had been in some messy things in Latin America. Uh, so I was always very cautious. I won't say I was a coward, but I was certainly not brave at all. I was very cautious. And as the soldiers made it under fire across the other side, the one who was just in front of me got about halfway there and got hit. A soldier from the other side who had made it to life to the levee, to the dike, came out plodding like this, wanted to pull him back, tried to lift him. He couldn't do it on his own. He looked over towards us, and I said, who, me? (laughs) (laughs) But it was me. I was the next guy up. So I took off. I didn't even think about it, and I said I was a very cautious guy. I was not a brave guy. I took my thing off, you know, and I plodded through, and, you know, and we helped. And finally, the point is, we made it. We got the guy back to the dike. That was maybe one of the worst days of my life. The best day was a little... This, a little bit later, a medevac came in, took us out. PB1, Mr. Day, Mr. Day, and I ended up at some base in uh, South Vietnam. I don't even know where it was. But at 4 o'clock in the morning, the three of us, we haven't eaten. We're literally covered with mud, uh, are walking along, our arms around each other, they're singing something, and I'm singing Roll Me Over in the Clover. <laughs> and the three of us 
are drunk on life. And these are the moments when you walk away from death mm -hmm. and live. Of course, we had no film. It was all ruined by mud. You know, we didn't get anything on the air, but Ed Fooey was waiting up at, I don't know, uh, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning when we got back to the hotel. It's the best and the worst. That's what Vietnam was. Well, I can think of a couple of uh, days that weren't very much fun at all uh, in Central America. We've all spent time. Um, in 1979, in West, as Managua was uh, beginning to fall to the Sandinistas and the Somoza forces were clearly losing, um, it became evident that um, uh, the Sandinistas were going to win. Um, but the, the streets of Managua are a battle zone. Um, from house to house, neighborhood to neighborhood, you didn't know what you were going to find. Now, will the government hold this block, or does the rebels, the Sandinistas have this block? So, um, one night I'm with Norman Lloyd again. Um, we had cultivated a, uh, a captain named Eric Aguilar. And Captain Aguilar uh, was a very courageous uh, government captain, uh, aggressive. And uh, he said, if you guys want to come with me, we're going to go, uh, going to take my machine gun on, on the, machine gun mounted on the Jeep. We're going to run down the road, and uh, I think, I think there's some Sandinistas in about 200 yards down the road in the, in the barrio down there. You guys want to come? You're welcome to come. So, nothing will do, but Norman and I have to go. <laughs> so, um, we're riding in the back of the Jeep, bouncing and bouncing and bouncing, and, and Norman's trying to shoot and hold on at the same time, and the machine gun is yattering and shooting into the either side of the road. And this is getting on, on camera, quintessential bang-bang. Bang-bang is the phrase used for noise and shooting and combat and confusion and just the, the fog of war. So we... Uh, we get this and get it back, and we actually get it on the air that night, and it was considered to be absolutely, because Norman Lloyd shot it, first class bang-bang. So we're celebrating our success in the hotel bar that night, and um, the uh, saying, well, what are we going to do for an encore? What are we going to do tomorrow? So we uh, figured, well, we'll go back, we'll find Captain Aguilar and, and do something else tomorrow with him. Um, and then our local staff, our, our CBS employees, uh, Nicaraguans, um, a couple of them tell us that, uh, that the ABC Bureau, also in the hotel, in the Intercon Hotel, the ABC uh, Bureau ha has received a rocket from New York. And a rocket is a highly critical a piece of telex or lease line or communication of some kind. And they tell us, the ABC locals tell our locals, that uh, the criticism from ABC New York is, why can't we have stuff like CBS has? Well, why do I have to watch it on another network? What are you guys doing down there? Well, the next day, Norman and I go out again, and uh, we get pinned down by a sniper, and, we, and there's a couple of other print journalists with us, 
and we can't move. And any time anybody stands up, ping, and the, the guy would fire one round. Uh, and we were there for about an hour, and finally Norman had had enough. And Norman says, I'm not staying here, and he stood up, and nothing happened. The sniper had gone. <laughs> so we head back to the hotel, and we pull up in front of the hotel, and we're getting out of our, our, our Jeep, and all of a sudden I feel this bear hug from behind. And I, I turn around, it, it's Ken Lukoff, the ABC producer. And I figured, well, he'd heard that we were pinned down and we were in trouble, and now he's glad we're, we're back. But no, that's not what happened. Ken, Luk Ken Lukoff looks at me and says, they've murdered Bill. I have his body in the truck. Mm. I said, what? Yeah, they, they, they just uh, murdered Bill Stewart. He's dead. He's in the car. The barricade was, they had us get out, show our identification. Uh, while we were out, I noticed on the left-hand side of the building, the interpreter's body. He had been shot in the head. We got back into the van. The driver asked if we wanted to take Bill's body back to the hotel. He said we did. So he and I backed up, put Bill's body in the van, came back here to the hotel. He was carrying a white flag? He was carrying a white flag, hands raised above his head. Members of the press, I have made this written statement, and I, I, I ask you, as president of Nicaragua and as supreme commander of the armed forces of this country to accept my most deep condolences on the sad and tragic event that resulted in the loss of the lives Bill Stewart and his Nicaraguan interpreter Juan Francisco Espinosa. He said, uh, and Bill insisted he had to go out today. He had to go out and, and try to get a story. Mm -hmm. And uh, now he's dead. And um, we, we talked among ourselves, uh, CBS among ourselves. Um, di did we contribute to Bill Stewart's death mm -hmm. by, work, by doing our job? Hmm. Well, I don't know. Um, if, in fact, the rocket from New York prompted Bill Stewart to do something he shouldn't have done, in, in a deadly, dangerous city, well, then maybe what we did did contribute to his death. Uh, I like to think it did. The smell of his murder. Oh, yeah. yeah he's on oh, the yeah. ground. The, the, the cameraman, uh, the ABC cameraman kept the camera rolling in the. He didn't, never, right. he didn't leave the van. Right. Bill walks down the road and approaches these troops. Um, they tell him to kneel down, so he kneels down. Then they say, lie down. And he lies down, and the one, guy, one guy kicks him, and the other guy walks over and <laughs> shoots him in the back of the head. Once, body, you know, jumps a foot off Jesus, the ground, yeah. and he's dead. And this is all on camera. Lying this, this, down. Yeah. What brave guys yeah. shoot somebody yeah. lying down. Uh, uh, so sense of, the sense, sense of guilt. You all knew Dana Stone and Sean Flynn. Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a confession here. I contributed to their death. Hello, I'm Jackie Cooper, and I'd like to tell you the story of a young man's life. Sean Flynn, son of movie star Errol Flynn, found his place in life as a dedicated photojournalist. Armed with only his cameras and atop his motorcycle, Sean Flynn took off into the jungles of Cambodia to bring the news of the war to the world. That was April 6, 1970, and Sean hasn't been accounted for since. Have we got a few minutes? Yes. It was Cambodia, 1970, April. Dana was a, uh, 
uh, an AP uh, photographer. And uh, Flynn was, I guess, freelance. I don't know who he was working for. I didn't know Flynn before. But Dana really wanted to be a CBS cameraman. So he and Sorensen and I go into Cambodia. We're not supposed to be going in as journalists, but uh, Dana's got a pile of dirty laundry on top of sound gear and, and this sort of thing. We get to immigration, and they ask for our <laughs> professions, and I say I am a, a fertilizer distributor. I thought that that was mm -hmm. a true <laughs> statement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, the two of them, not much was happening then. People had not, had not been uh, killed by the, or captured yet. A whole bunch of them were later, of course. Uh, but things were kind of quiet, and Dana and Sean were both there, at the Hotel de Royale. And Dana said he would like to go off with, uh, he was a sound man for us. He, uh, he wanted to go off with a camera, silent camera, and see what he could do. The two of them were gonna go on a motorbikes out into the countryside and see what they could do. And I said, sure, you can do that, fine. Because nothing much was happening. The next day, I didn't know when they were going to go, but the next day, Carl and I are off somewhere, and we come back to the hotel. Dana is not there. We figured he and Sean had gone. Bob Little, who was then the foreign editor, calls in the meanwhile and says, uh, oh, we want Dana to go to Saigon to work uh, with Jack Lawrence on what turned out to be the uh, the famous Charlie uh, Company, Charlie Charlie Company. Company mm -hmm. and I said no, <laughs> he's off. Uh, I, I sent him off. He, you know, he wanted to go off, and he's off doing a, you know, trying to get something on his yeah. own. He's so he can't make it. I can't send him back to you. A little while later, Dana walks in. To the, he had gone out to the. He hadn't left a note. He had gone out to the airport to pick up his wife, Louise, coming in yes. from Saigon. I'm faced with uh, Dana, so anxious to get out on the road and do his thing to make his m marks as a cameraman, but I've got instructions to send him back. So I asked Dana, what do you guys want to do? What do you want to do, Dana? Because I didn't care about Flint, I, but I cared about Dana but I wanted to give him the chance to do what he wanted to do. So I was torn, but I asked him, I want to go. And you know the story, he never came, they never came back. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Caught and murdered. So I tell yeah. you, I, I, I too wrote a book, a novel one time, in which I allude to this, but hiding, hiding the story, saying it's, where the correspondent sends a Vietnamese sound man on the last seat available in, in, a, in a chopper, and then the chopper gets blown out of the air, you know, mm -hmm. with a short round. But it, it lives with you. It does. Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking of another uh, Central American adventure uh, story. Um, in 1984, this time in El Salvador, 
Um, John Hoagland is a legendary Newsweek photographer. He was the dean of the Western Press Corps in El Salvador, and he was widely respected and a good guy. And one morning we're sitting around the bureau and nothing's happening, and on the radio scanner, uh, someone, the military scanner, someone hears that up near the town of Suchitoto, about an hour outside the capital, uh, that there's something going on. So we say, oh, let's go. So we jump in our car, we drive down to the road to Suchitoto, and we come to a military checkpoint, and we're stopped. And there, at the checkpoint, sitting on the hood of his Jeep with his legs crossed, sitting like this, is John Hoagland, because he was always ahead of everybody else. So um, he, um, we talk to him, we, we know each other, and we, we say, you've gone up the road? And, and he says, yeah, I'm going up the road, uh, as soon as they'll let us. And I said, well, you know, we can really just go anytime we want. Uh, they're not, they're not going to stop us. And he said, well, then let's go. And uh, before we can leave, who shows up but Bob Nicholsberg, photographer with Time magazine, who has brought his girlfriend for a, a day in the country <laughs> out to see what he does for a living. So now we've got John Hoagland of Newsweek, Nicholsburg of Time, the girlfriend, and uh, me and John Vincent, who is the uh, producer slash interpreter, and our Mexican camera crew. So we start... Oh, and also at the checkpoint, there's an NBC crew, but no producer and no correspondent. And they decline to come. They say, no, no, we're staying, we're, we're staying put. So... We start up the road, the two still men first with the girlfriend, and we, we four CBS guys trailing, maybe 10, 20, yard, 20 yards behind. Um, and then we learn later from the people that was, didn't leave the checkpoint that as we go up the road, winding down a single file to the road to join the road that we're on is a group of gorillas, a pretty good-sized group of gorillas, maybe... 80, 90 of, mm. of the gorillas. Mm. So now you have this group of seven people on the road with gorillas behind them on the road and ahead of them, government troops. And sure enough, pretty soon, um, we're, we're, you start to hear gunfire uh, and it's very close. So fortunately... I wouldn't be telling the story. Fortunately, there was a big, deep ditch next to the road where, first of all, Nicholsburg and uh, Hoagland and the girlfriend jump in, into their ditch. We jump into the ditch maybe 20 yards behind them. And uh, now it is really full of lead in the air. I mean, it, th these two sides are really going at it. And um, we're, if we weren't in this ditch, I don't, we probably would have been just absolutely... Mm -hmm. caught in the crossfire and, and killed. Um, but we were in the ditch, thank God, saved us. Um, but when we're down, Roberto, our, our Pineda, our cameraman, is trying to shoot something, but he tries to hold the camera up like this, and I said, no, no, don't, don't. don't. Uh, you, you can't get anything meaningful. Uh, just, just stay here. Uh, well, then, John Hoagland, being John Hoagland, still a photographer, he has to take a picture. So he stands up, catches one round right in the chest, uh, and Nicholsburg yells, John shot! And then about five minutes, not five minutes, five, 
seconds later, he says, he's dead. I said, what? Yeah, he, he was dead in 20 seconds. He's, he's, he's shot. Uh, so now we're, we got a, a, a dead journalist and Nicholsburg and his girlfriend and then the four CBS people. And the battle is still raging up and down the road. It's pretty, we can see from our vantage point the feet. You see uh, flip-flops and, and running shoes of the, of the uh, guerrillas as they're advancing up the road. And then they, <laughs> they're running back down the road. And here come some army boots chasing them down the road. So they fought up and down the road for about an hour. And then uh, as quickly as it started, it was over. The rebels just disappear off into the countryside, and the, so the skirmish, the engagement is finished. And the girlfriend turns to Nicholsberger and says, what are we doing tomorrow, dear? <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, the area is not secured, so we, uh, we're not going to get a vehicle in there. Hmm. So we figure we've got to get John's body out of there. So um, I take an arm, uh, Roberto takes an arm, Nicholsberg takes a foot, and Jaime Robles, the sound man, takes a foot. So the four of us are carrying John's body, and Nicholsburg and his girlfriend are walking beside the body. And, um, oh, and while the whole time we've been in the ditch, I've been talking into my tape recorder, uh, uh, doing a Roser, a radio on scene report. So I'm, I must have done 35, 40 minutes worth of, of audio tape in that ditch while all this shooting is going on and, and just describing what we're, what we're doing. Our coverage begins in El Salvador with Richard Wagner, who was with photographer Hoagland when he was killed. Soldiers at the checkpoint on the road to Suchitoto said there was fighting ahead, but journalists could pass at their own risk. They were right about the fighting. It was fierce and it was across the road, the worst of situations for non-combatants. Suddenly, our small group of eight journalists was caught in a crossfire. John Hoagland was about 50 yards ahead of the CBS crew as all of us scrambled for cover. It seemed to us as if the Army troops were firing at John and two other photographers. Tragically, we were right. Our tape recorder was running. I think we're in an ambush. All of a sudden, shots fired out. A Time magazine photographer yelled that John Hoagland, nosewing photographer, has been killed. But everyone was still pinned down. By now, the guerrillas had driven the army down the road. They shouted that we were reporters as they passed, often pointing their weapons in our direction. Then they told us to come out. The fighting had moved down the road. We carried John's body back to our cars, still not certain the fighting was, indeed, down the road. John Hoagland was a brilliant photographer who was drawn to events like the one that cost him his life. As a maker of pictures and as a man, people who knew him will not forget him. Richard Wagner, CBS News, back from the road to Suchitoto. It just said that John Hoagland, Newsweek photographer, has been shot and he's dead. Uh, uh, you know, talking into, into the recorder. So uh, anyway, it's a long way back to that checkpoint carrying a, a John's body. So we get back to the checkpoint and uh, people had heard back, way back in the Capitol that what's going on out there. And some other press vehicles had come, but they didn't, they didn't come up the road. They stopped at the checkpoint. So uh, some uh, Newsweek had sent something for John. Uh, so a vehicle, they, they put his body in, in that and uh, took him back to the Capitol. Um, so we, uh, John was the only uh, casualty of the day among the press, but uh, it just, you know, he was just doing his job. He stood up to take one picture at exactly the wrong time 
got one bullet in the chest, and as Nicholsburg said, he was dead in 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was really one of the greats. Um, so we, uh, we put that story on the air that, uh, that, that same night, uh, and that was not a good day. That yeah. was a bad day. I was frightened in when you got shot at. It's, it's a strange feeling that comes over you. It's really hard to very much describe. But the most frightened I was was pretty much a whole day in a flood. We were south of Da Nang. We had gone down on one of these, um, the guy at Milai, uh, Lieutenant <coughs> Kelly. Kelly. He was back from the United States over with a lawyer going over his case and doing stuff down at uh, Chulai. And... Uh, we got what we could from this. It wasn't much of a story at all. And we were in a convoy of three Jeeps, ABC Jeep and AP Jeep and CBS. I was with uh, uh, the cameraman you mentioned, B.B. Wan, his sound man, B.G. Kung, and a Japanese still photographer who had been with us all day, just kind of hanging around, and had not said two words. We found out later why. Very slightly built man, very quiet. We got out on the road in this pouring rain, riding up Route 1, trying to get back to the Da Nang Press Center. But the Jeeps stalled out because the Red River had turned into the China Sea. The China Sea had come inland, and we were up to our knees in muddy water. And then we were up to our thighs, and we were pushing the Jeeps because we could see a little rise where the road came up out of the flood. We were, we were headed for that. We eventually got to that place, pushing the Jeep, and we were each on one fender, pushing the thing along, and a Japanese guy was on the right front fender, and he never said a word to anybody. We, it was very frightening. I did not know if we were ever going to get out of this, a roaring flood, completely overcast. We could hear helicopters, which would, of course, have been Americans, but we couldn't see any helicopters. What we didn't know was it got to be 5 in the afternoon, and you know we didn't want to be out on any roads late in the afternoon. There was a great big, tough... Marine sergeant, great big, heavy, stocky man, in the in the uh, ran the Da Nang press center, and he went to his colonel. He said, "Sir, we got some flash bulbs. That's what their nickname was for us, who are missing. Can we uh, one of these? Well, we got Chinooks running up and down, moving Vietnamese to higher ground mm -hmm. by the hundreds or the thousands. We can have one of them. And sure enough, a Chinook lands on this little rise, which was a bridge over what had been a creek, which was now an ocean." And we were occupying this little rise with all manner of snakes, the biggest <laughs> multipedes I've ever seen, enormous animals, insects, and Lord knows what else, and w with each other, and waving, trying to signal choppers that were going overhead. But then this one Chinook comes down, lands, the, 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 uh, the ramp drops, and we leave the Jeeps and pick up our gear and go running in there. And we find out much later that the Japanese guy was very close to his buddy, another Japanese still man. One of them was named Sakai, oh. and the other oh. was named Sawada. Norman knew these guys. Norman Sakai was known. killed. In, uh, Sakai was killed, and this was Sawada. And he had just learned that morning that his buddy had been killed. They were very close. And Sakai they were very close. I mean, they had each other, really. They didn't have us. But then, you know, I just am so struck by him. But the whole day was completely frightening. I just had mm -hmm. no idea until that chopper put down that we were ever going to get out of there alive. Mm -hmm. And the most amazing thing was weeks and weeks later I heard that some of the Vietnamese went down that road and found our Jeep mm -hmm. and the other Jeep. And, you know, you remember in Saigon, you, you get your wrist 
wristwatch taken off your wrist. <laughs> so nothing had been touched in these Jeeps. They just got in them <laughs> and started them up and drove them back <laughs> to the press center. Amazing thing. <laughs> but that was, to me, that was the big fright. Uh, I just did not know how in the world <laughs> we were ever going to get out of there. It's a long day. Well, the thing in in Vietnam and Central America and, and anywhere, actually, uh, back in that period before the embedding with, in the Middle East, uh, you could go anywhere you wanted to go, anywhere that you were willing to go, and you could, you know, get your, talk your way onto a helicopter or talk your way into a, a joining a foot patrol. Um, there was no one to tell you you couldn't do it. You could just yep. take your camera and your tape recorder and off you go and whatever you uh, trouble you got yourself into it was your own fault you got into it um, but uh, we certainly uh, didn't hesitate to go into some very dodgy places and uh, mm -hmm. there were some guys of course that didn't make it you know these restrictions on us in the Gulf War so annoyed Bob Simon that he took his crew and left the reservation and they just went off on their own. And as you all know, it's part of history. They got captured. They got captured. And they damn near got killed. Spent they really 40, 40 days in prison. In 1991, he was captured by Iraqi forces. He and three colleagues imprisoned for 40 days. Welcome back. They didn't beat us at these interrogations. They terrorized us, which is far more effective than beatings. After you've been beaten a couple of times, you realize that, hey, it's, it's extremely unpleasant and it hurts like hell. And we sat down the road from where we are now in Germain's restaurant when it was still a place. You might have been at this meal. Bob Simon, myself, and I forget who, remember what he said? He said, uh, uh, he, by this time, he'd been pointed to 60 Minutes. And he said, you know, I did this horrible thing. I took the crew, and I left the restrictions, and we went out on our own into the desert, and I really almost got everybody killed. And he said this was a terrible thing to do. And he said, you know what I got from that? I got a book deal. I got a job at 60 Minutes, and I got a great big raise. <laughs> uh, the fact that we're all here speaks to something that I I believe in after years of this kind of coverage and that is instinct. Mm. Instinct can do you well and can do you bad. Uh, one time Sorensen and I are driving by ourselves, I'm driving with Carl Sorensen in Cambodia. We all knew what things look like if, you know, if there, there are no farmers in the fields or anything, it's bad, right? But everything was normal on this particular day. We just kept going, and then suddenly, well, let's just say highway or whatever it was, at, at 35 kilometer, right? I put my foot on the brake, and I said, Carl, we're going back. I said, why? Everything's okay. I wouldn't even... Usually, it's, you know, it's a vote. What do we do? Talk. I just turned the car around. Let's say that this was 10 of 3 in the afternoon, mm -hmm. whatever time it was. We were in a white Mercedes. We get back, and we learn that, say, at 8 minutes to 3, a mile ahead of us, a white Mercedes was blown up from the side of the road. It was... Mm. Was was mortared or really? rocketed? Mm -hmm. Really, wow. really. Sheer instinct. Yeah, and I know this has happened with everybody. Well, good instinct or a good cameraman. 
or <coughs> cameraman, yeah, or both, or, yeah. or dumb luck. A yeah. little, yeah. I was going to yeah. say a little yeah. bit of luck. I, I would say all of us uh, <laughs> owe a lot to dumb luck. I mean, because we put ourselves in situations. Dumb luck and smart cameraman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll second that. <laughs> yeah, guys, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to episode one of Captured Culture. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. <laughs>